You're listening to The Health Classes You Missed. My name is Monica and I'm a secondary school health teacher with a passion for all things health. Whether you're currently at school or you finished 20 years ago, this podcast will help you understand those topics that may have been skimmed over, considered inappropriate or flat out ignored. So sit up straight, faces forward, let's get into it. Just a quick trigger warning before we get into today's episode, we do discuss miscarriage and pregnancy loss throughout the episode. If you or someone that you know needs help or support at any time, call Pregnancy, Birth and Baby on 1800 882 436 or Lifeline on 131114. Hello everyone and welcome back to another very exciting guest episode. I feel like it's been so long since I had a guest on here and I just, it was so nice to be able to just have a chat with someone, ask some questions and really learn from someone else in real time. As you guys know, I'm not an expert on every single topic that I cover on this podcast. So I love having these people on. So I get to learn about all these awesome topics as well. I hope you guys have had an absolutely fantastic week. I I'm still on holidays, which has been so great. I've been absolutely loving it. I've just been getting so much podcast stuff done. I've been creating some sex ed units. I've been sorting out my life for next term. And I feel like I've just had this wave of productivity and I'm really happy about it. It's so easy sometimes in these breaks to just want to do absolutely nothing, to not open my laptop and just to pretend like school doesn't exist for a bit, which I think if you're a teacher listening to this, you can probably relate to that a little bit. So that's kind of me in the first week, but this second week I have been full on. I'm really happy about it. And I've just been enjoying being at home while it's been so cold outside. But enough from me or about me, let's get into this episode. So I've got Lucy here today. She is an embryologist, a fertility educator, and an IVF patient advocate. I don't know about you guys, but I definitely learned absolutely nothing in health about fertility, about IVF. In fact, there was so much from this episode that was so new to me, um, even as, you know, a 25-year-old. So really, really good to have Lucy on. As someone who, I guess, in recent years has begun thinking about my future with a family and also having a few red flags when it comes to my own reproductive health, I think it's really bloody important to understand this stuff and know what options are available for you in case you are someone that does struggle to fall pregnant or to conceive. Lucy is an absolute legend and such an inspiring human being and I just I couldn't have asked for a better person to come on and chat with me about this topic. So I hope you guys enjoy and let's bring Lucy in. So welcome Lucy. I've got Lucy here from Two Lines Fertility today. She's been so lovely to come and take some time out of you know, her day to come and talk to me and and learn about all things IVF and being an embryologist and uh, fertility and all of that fun stuff. So thank you for coming on. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Monica. It's lovely to be here. Yay, no worries. So firstly, I would like you to just tell me a little bit about you, how you got to where you are in terms of, I know you were an embryologist before and now you're an IVF patient advocate maybe, you know, a bit of your story, if you wouldn't mind as well. I know uh, when we first initially had a conversation, um, you talked a little bit about yourself and your story um, with IVF and fertility and uh, yeah, go for it. 
look, it, it, how long is a piece of string? People <laughs> tell me to tell them about my story. I'm like, do you want the like two hour version or the five minute <laughs> version or which version are we up to? Um, no, look, very, very quickly and, and summarily, um, I did a Bachelor of Agricultural Science, a postgraduate diploma in reproductive science, um, started my training as an embryologist back in 2000 um, and worked as a clinical embryologist for close to 10 years. I then moved into sales and marketing type roles within the IVF industry. So I worked for a big country called, a country <laughs> company um, called Vitrolife, which is based in Sweden, who manufacture and market products for IVF clinics. And I was one of their global customer support embryologists. Um, so I, my region was you know, Europe mostly. I was based in Sweden um, and Australia. And then I came and worked for an IVF clinic in Australia in um, in their GP education department. I'm, I'm pretty confident they saw it very much as sales and marketing. I saw it very much as GP education. Um, and I was um, made redundant from that role when I was 37 weeks pregnant and 44 years old um, when there was a bit of a shuffle in the business management of the business um, and there was some question about the, uh, the need for... GP education and the direct the, the way that we were delivering that GP education, if you like, um, and the links to bottom lines because it was a business. And that frustrated me a lot. Um, and so I decided that was the final, final pin. And I really wanted to go back to the way that I had been working as an embryologist back in the early 2000s when clinics were all not-for-profit um, and the embryologists, the doctors and the nurses and the counsellors all worked together very much as a team with the patient right in the middle. And we all, you know, I had heaps of opportunity to talk to patients about their embryology and their IVF experience. That's changed these days. There are a lot of clinics where patients won't ever, ever get to meet an embryologist. They don't even know what they do um, or, or who they are, just that they're behind the scenes and, and you know. Um, and so from where I sit, that puts the patients in a very um, vulnerable position because they aren't given the information to be able to troubleshoot what's going on. And, and you know, to a certain extent, they shouldn't be troubleshooting. That's up to the doctors. But it's getting that balance right of, of the basic information. And I guess that's where we come in where this conversation comes in because people go into IVF without enough of a general knowledge about how their reproductive systems work. And so without that base general knowledge, they're very vulnerable to the wrong people if they happen to come across them in their fertility journey. So that's kind of how I've ended up doing what I'm doing, I guess, in a nutshell. Yeah, and that's so important, as you said, not having that basic understanding of our our own bodies and our own reproductive systems and it's great I mean the fact that you have now gone from an embryologist to you know your life's work is helping people understand and being there for them and answering those questions that's invaluable and that's so fantastic um that that's what you do now so I want to ask what's an embryologist what do you actually do as an embryologist because I'm sure a lot of people hear that and go I don't even know what that means <laughs> no that's right so even when I was offered the, my very first job as an embryologist they're like oh we want to train you as an embryologist I'm like okay so what's an embryologist <laughs> yeah. great but what is it yeah. and you know even by then I'd done um uh, you know my postgraduate diploma in reproductive science and I still didn't really know what it was embryologists are the scientists inside IVF clinics so we're the scientists who 
um, deal with the sperm, we deal with the eggs, we are the ones who go searching for the eggs in the follicular fluid. When the doctor's collecting the fluid from the follicles in the ovaries, we're the ones who find the eggs in that fluid and then we deal with the eggs and the sperm, do all the things that needs to happen to them to get them together and then watch those embryos grow for a number of days, choose the embryo that's... Um, most suitable for embryo transfer um, and then transfer, you know, load the catheters and, you know, so we're in the labs, we're scientists um, in the labs playing with sperm and eggs and embryos basically. Yeah, wow. So I guess your role is doing the things that uh, I guess are, you know, bunny is here, supposed to happen within the body. You guys are just kind of the little mechanics behind it to be like, all right, sperm and egg, this is what you're yeah. supposed to do. And then choosing the best embryo you then insert that into the woman is that what happens normally yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. so the doctor will do the actual procedures yeah. so the actual uh, needle into the ovaries to get the follicular flu follicular fluid out yeah and then once that fluid is out and in a test tube it's handed over to the embryologist once the semen sample is in a jar that's handed over to the embryology lab and then we deal with everything in the embryology lab and through until there's an embryo ready to be transferred back to the uterus yeah. at which point we load it up in a catheter give that catheter to the doctor and the doctor puts it back inside the uterus so okay. um all the things in the middle there um to do with the sperm and the eggs and the embryos yeah so you're looking uh, at like the quality and everything as well and whether or not yeah, yeah. and 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 um helping make decisions about um whether we do standard IVF or ICSI, for example. So ICSI is what we always see on the television as IVF. Whenever there's anyone on the news talking about IVF, they always show pictures of ICSI. And ICSI is intracytoplasmic sperm injection. So it's where we actually inject a single sperm into the cytoplasm inside the actual egg. Mm -hmm. So the gooey stuff in the middle of the egg. Um, ICSI is where we inject a single sperm inside the actual egg. So when you see that on telly, you see a big round thing and a, and a, and a glass pipette coming in the side and, and pushing into it. And what that's actually, that, that big round thing is the egg and the, the pipette coming in on the side it holds a sperm inside it and that sperm goes into the egg. Now, that's not the only way to do IVF, but it's one of two ways to introduce the sperm and the eggs together yeah. and hope for fertilisation. Yeah, wow. And that's interesting that it's just one sperm. Is there a reason that it's just one and there's not, you know, taking a few more chance? Or actually, I guess... Because we only want one copy yeah, of Yeah, I was like, hold on, you can't... Copy of they the all egg. race to the egg, but they don't all penetrate the egg. That was no, a silly question. No. Yeah, no, <laughs> I had to really think about funny. that for a second. <laughs> these are the kinds of questions, you know, when people find themselves having IVF, yeah. these are the things people don't know, you know, and... and there's all different levels of education. You know, the, the, the workshop that I give to 15 to 25 year olds is, is I want a baby one day, but I'm not ready yet. And that is all about what can I be doing in my lifestyle now that's going to influence my chances and my ability to get pregnant 
later when I'm ready? What do I need to learn now that's going to help me later? Um, Because I think I probably want children later. And there's lots of things we do in those very risk-taking years of 15 to 25 that are going to have an impact on your future fertility. And so when I'm talking to 35, 37-year-olds and and saying, oh, we need to do this, that and something else, they're like, why am I only hearing about this now? Yeah. Yeah, good question. This is stuff you should know when you're younger. And then... Once I started talking to 15 to 25-year-olds, I'm like, you know what? This information should be in ground in us from birth. We should know this. So now I, what I actually need to do and have started doing is talk to parents of young children because there's things we do with our, our little people that's impacting their future fertility, exposure to endocrine-disrupting chemicals and all sorts of things. Sorry, I'm going off on a bit of a tangent That's now, okay. But, Keep going. This is um, awesome. But there's also various things we're conditioning our children with that if we condition them right from birth, they're never going to have to relearn it. Yeah. And so, you know, my kids, for example, would never, it would never even occur to them to put plastic in a microwave. Just, you know, it'd be like putting a, a, a teaspoon in the microwave to, to those of us who are of the older generation yeah. um, because I've conditioned them that way. And, you know, they, they just wouldn't even think about having really smelly bubble bath um, because it's not something they've ever had. And my 12-year-old, you know, when, as a little four-year-old, she used to cuddle her dolls and her babies and say, oh, I'm going to be a mum and I'm going to have six babies. And I'm like, if you can. Yeah. And, and she now, that's just part of her conditioning that at, at 12, you know, if I can have children, I'd like to have this many. Whereas there are a lot of 12 and 13-year-olds who don't even consider that they not, might not be able to. I know. And isn't that, that's interesting that, you know, even 15 to 25, I'm 25 now. So I guess I'm on that place of in recent years, I've started thinking about, okay, well, I'm probably going to try to have babies in the next five years. That's kind of something that's in the next, you know, prior to being 30, that's the ideal thing for me, I guess. And it's funny that you go through literally from probably around that 15 year old age mark where you're trying not to get pregnant so badly because that is just not even in your scope of anything that you don't necessarily care or learn or understand it. And like you said, you get to an age and all of a sudden it's not as easy as you think it's going to be. And you're stuck there going, Oh my gosh, where do I go from here? My time's running out. Birth control, I'd get pregnant. Literally. I just have to look at a penis and I was going to get pregnant. Yeah. And, and oh, that is not the case. No, no. Nah, and oh, unfortunately, it's so common as well, which we don't learn either talking about, you know, miscarriages and, and all of those things. We don't talk about them. Actually, on that topic, yes. can you talk to me about miscarriage quickly and just maybe what that means? Um, the impact that that can have on a person yeah look that and and that's another whole three hour type conversation um you know miscarriage is is devastating um and it's it's obviously what happens when a pregnancy stops going um i guess when i was your age i thought miscarriage was just you know you, you just suddenly started bleeding and then you didn't have a baby anymore you weren't pregnant anymore um but miscarriage can happen in a lot of different ways you can have an ultrasound at six weeks with no heartbeat and be told to come back and have another ultrasound at seven weeks and another one at eight weeks and then there maybe is a heartbeat but it's not fast enough so you've got to come back at nine weeks and then it's still not quite fast enough and then it stops at 10 weeks but then you nothing happened your body's not going to expel that until 12 weeks so then you've got to make a decision about whether you want to 
have a surgical termination of that pregnancy or a medical termination of that pregnancy or whether you just want to wait and let nature take its course in which case you know you're carrying a dead baby around for a couple of weeks you know it, it, it's traumatic and um i think yes you're right we don't talk about miscarriage a, a lot um once you've had a miscarriage and you start talking about it every, I, everyone you speak to says has a miscarriage story either they've had some themselves their sister did their mother did their best friend did everybody knows someone who's had a miscarriage um and unfortunately we tend to pull out a whole lot of very placatory cliches um, when faced with miscarriage as human beings we are uncomfortable with sadness and we want to make people feel better and so we say things like oh well at least it was early it's probably for the best it wasn't meant to be um Oh, at least it was only six weeks, not 12. At least it was 12 weeks, not 20. Uh, at least it happened naturally. You didn't have to make a decision. Um, you know, all these kind of, it's common. Miscarriage is common. One in four pregnancies end in miscarriage. These kind of statements are all true, but what the, all they serve to do is make the person who's had the miscarriage feel like they don't have a right to be sad about it. And um, we tend to squash that sadness by using all of these cliches. And yes, miscarriage is really common. One in four pregnancies do end in miscarriage. Most miscarriages happen before 12 weeks. Most miscarriages are caused by a chromosomal abnormality. Um, so yes, it probably is for the best, but anyone who's not using birth control, um, the minute you think you might be pregnant, before you've even peed on a stick, your brain has raced forward to work out oh, well, it'll be this age or that date or this date or, oh, it'll be due around Christmas or it'll be a summer baby or it'll be a winter baby or it'll be... And, and there's the, 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 the two thoughts at the same time of, oh, shit, oh, my God, I'm not ready to... Oh, this could be amazing. This could be the best thing ever. And so by the time you're six or seven or eight or 10 or 12 weeks, you're well down that pathway. And it doesn't matter that it was for the best. It doesn't matter that it's common. It's really sad. And it can be massively traumatic. And, you know, I'm speaking the voice of experience. I had at least five miscarriages, probably six. I stopped counting. I stopped taking any notice. Um, and, you know, the first one was by far and away the most traumatic and devastating. Um, but, you know, by the time I had the fifth or sixth one, I, I think I'd just given up entirely. Um, and I was... Um, still working in the fertility space. So I had this yeah. beautiful mask on and I was still helping everybody else have babies. And, you know, yeah, miscarriage is devastating. It's really hard, really hard. And it's so true, you know, you talk to people all the time and I guess same thing as I've grown up a bit and I'm in this kind of age group now where friends of mine are pregnant or people in my family are having babies and you do hear about it all the time. I think the really important thing to remember is if someone does choose to tell you about their miscarriage, please, no statement that starts with at least is ever going to make them feel better. Yeah. Um, and probably the, well, definitely the only thing that's going to make them feel better is time. Mm. And if you can just say, shit, this sucks. I'm here with you. How can I help you? It's a whole lot better and will be a whole lot better received than at least or um oh well or it's for the best or any of those kinds of things you know which we want to say because we want to help the person feel better they've already heard all those things a million times they're hearing those things from their doctors and their scientists because we give 
the stats and the data and the facts. And those are the facts and the stats and the data. What they need from you as their friend is time. Yeah, really important to understand how to support people in that way too. And look, like you said, there's not always a silver lining. It's And you don't always need one. And that's, yeah, sitting there and just letting people be upset about it, I guess, is something that's... Yep. Yeah, and like you said before, I really like that. We don't know how to handle sadness a lot of the time and we feel uncomfortable about it. Um, yeah. So true. I feel that a lot as well and you don't always know what to say or how to say it. Just let and, people and be sad. the best thing to say is I don't know what to say. Yeah. This sucks. Yeah, full on. And totally so, okay to say. You don't actually have to have the answer. Yeah. You can just say this is shit. Yeah, you don't always need a solution to the problem, do you? Yeah. It's just is what it is. Yeah. And again, like you said, time, time and, and space to feel that way. And that's, yeah, yeah. so important. I love yeah. that. I love that. I, you know, that wasn't really originally what I had in here, but I love that, that support, those offering yeah. of support and how to do that. Cause again, so important. Yeah. Backtracking a little bit. Yep. Can we talk about what IVF actually is, what it stands for? I know you said there's a few different types. That's totally new to me. Actually, yep. I don't even know that. Um, can you touch, um, probably again, a big conversation that we could talk about for ages, but <laughs> uh, look, I could talk about fertility underwater with a mouthful of muscles <laughs> or knitting, you know, yeah. um, IVF stands for in vitro fertilization. What that means is that the egg and the sperm are meeting and they have the opportunity to fertilize in vitro, in vitro being dish. So in a dish. Yeah. So it is, um, fertilizing eggs outside of the body basically is at its very simplest terms um when we do ivf what we are doing is collecting the eggs from the woman the sperm from the man whether that's a donor or a partner or a whatever it happens to be um, and we're putting them together in the lab um, there are a couple of different ways we can put sperm and eggs together we can either just put them in a dish together at the same time and let them do their own thing or we can inject a single sperm into each individual egg injecting injecting the eggs excuse me with the sperm or um, putting them in the dish together at the same time doesn't guarantee fertilization it's just a way of hopefully making that happen we then check the the eggs for signs of fertilization about 16 to 18 hours after we've put them together however we did that um, and then once we've seen signs of fertilization and confirmed the signs of fertilization um, then we can watch them grow for a few days and and the first thing they need to do is divide into cells um, and they do that within the shell of the original egg they divide into cells and by day Day five, we expect them to be what we call a blastocyst, um, which is two very distinct different cell types, um, the trophectoderm, which goes on to become the placenta, and the inner cell mass, which goes on to become the baby. That embryo hatches out of the shell of the original egg that it, that it started in, um, somewhere between day five and day seven. Um, we want to. We usually try to transfer the embryos back to the uterus on hatching or just before hatching dealing with hatched embryos is not that easy they're very sticky and, and much harder to deal with um, than when they're in their shells so much easier to deal with when they're in their shells a bit like trying to handle uh, an egg in its shell versus an egg that you've cracked out and you want to try and hang on to it yeah. um, um and we transfer the embryo back the woman is then um in her in, in a lot of women who are trying to conceive words pregnant until proven otherwise um the that they're actually not they're just scientifically speaking they're actually not we've just put an embryo back 
um, in the right place at the right time and we have to hope that that embryo then implants in the uterus so embryo transfer is not an embryo implantation implantation happens later um, and usually somewhere between day seven and day 10 or day five and day 10 somewhere in there the embryo implants into the uterus and builds a placenta and starts to send messaging back to mum hey i'm here send me lots of hormones and support me when we're talking about miscarriage before i, I was saying one in four pregnancies end in miscarriage the statistic that I learned at uni is that 80% of embryos formed in nature don't make it to baby. So um, whilst one in four confirmed pregnancies ends in miscarriage, there's an awful lot of embryos that are formed that don't make it to baby that are probably lost in those five days before you miss a period. So yeah. at the time of embryo transfer, you're if, assuming you have a 28-day cycle, um, embryo transfer would normally happen around about day 20 of that, day 19, day 20, somewhere around there. Um, so you actually haven't even missed a period yet. It's still at least a week um, until you're going to, you expect your period. Often it's a week or 10 days before you expect a period. So if you then get a period, that's actually no different really from getting a period before when you were trying to conceive at home. You may very well have been making embryos that just didn't implant properly. Um, whereas this time, you know you had an embryo transferred um, and then when you get a period, it feels like having a miscarriage or a chemical you know, pregnancy or whatever. Yeah, wow. that's a lot of information. To no, answer. that's okay. I'm just thinking about the human body is insane. It is uh, absolutely insane. How, how do insane. we ever actually get pregnant? I don't know. That's me listening to that. I'm like, wow, like that is. There's so many intricate parts to that that process that and, it and is a miracle, yeah. isn't it? Almost like it's. It is a miracle. And and that's why when I'm talking to my clients, they're like, "But I had IVF and it didn't work. Why not?" I'm like, "It's bloody amazing. Anyone ever has a baby?" Yeah. Like, you know, oh, but, but they collected 10 eggs and only six of them fertilised. Why? Well, because the process of fertilisation is a chemical cascade reaction that has to happen in a certain order at a certain time. And there are, I don't know, over 100 chemical reactions that have to happen in order, probably thousands, in order for the sperm to actually get its chromosomes into the egg. And, and that's just assuming it swims there and meets it. Yeah. If it actually meets it, there's a whole, all this series of chemical reactions that have to happen in order for it to actually get through the shell of the egg and get its chromosomes into the egg. And then for the egg to recognise those chromosomes and say, oh, yes, I see you chromosomes, here's my set, let's make friends and start replicating and dividing and, and doing that. You know, that's another whole series of, of things that need to happen. So it's amazing anyone ever conceived naturally. And... Um, you know, with, with natural conception, when you're trying naturally at home on your own or wherever you happen to be trying, <laughs> um, no judgment, um, <laughs> no judgment. But, you know, when, when you're trying naturally, you have literally one opportunity for all of those things to work properly in any given month because you only ovulate one egg per month. Yeah. Um, and that egg is actually only viable for maximum 24 hours. Yeah possibly less um and so you know that is it that is your only chance to conceive that month when you do ivf we're trying to give you as many opportunities to start that that series of events as we possibly can not you know within reason we don't want to collect 
40 eggs but um you know we want to give you as many opportunities to to do that as we can yeah wow and that's yeah like you said so many variables so many things that can happen if this thing's slightly out of time or this happened like it is we can't control them you can't control yeah coming back to to the the basics of your podcast Mm. we are raised and we are conditioned all our lives that if something doesn't work you know you're in year five and you Mm. hand in your history assignment and you get a c you got the very first thing your teacher expects you to do is to go back and work out what you could have done differently to get an a yeah so then when you face you know effort equals output Mm -hmm. you put it if you want and and we you know i did i i um duetted a reel of of mel robbins um a couple a month or so ago saying go out there and get it and you want anything and you can have anything you want if you just work hard enough and you can have it and that's that's a huge thing that that life coaches talk about all the time and it's probably true for most things until you get to fertility yeah you get to fertility it doesn't matter how hard you work or how much you want it it just might not work and there might just might be some scientific reason for that, or maybe there isn't a reason. And so when it doesn't work, we can't always just go back and go, well, what do I need to change to make it work this time? Because X plus Y is supposed to equal Z. This time X plus Y could equal 47. Yeah. But we just don't know. It's crazy, isn't it? It's, that makes it really hard as well when it's like, it's such a harsh reality there, isn't it? Where it's like you yeah. you don't necessarily have a solution or a reason I think yeah. that would be really hard to sit with sometimes as well as potentially not actually ever having a complete understanding or reasoning behind it. And like you said, we're conditioned to feel that way. We're yeah. conditioned to always understand why something's happening, how we can and, fix it, what the solution is. For a lot is. of people, this is the first time in life they've come across something that it doesn't matter how much you want it, it doesn't matter how hard you work, you just might not get it. Yeah. And, you know, you want that house on the hill, you want to go and buy that big house, well, go to uni, study hard, get a good job, earn the money, you can buy the house. You want that car, sell everything you own, earn the money, buy the car. You want that baby, ah, oh, bad luck. Yeah, bloody hell. That, that's hard. It's so hard. And really I think hard. Until, I guess, you've gone through it yourself, you're never going to fully understand that, are you? No, and then, then you're telling people about it at a dinner party when you're nearly 50. Yeah. And... Some friend of your parents who's 80 says, oh, my husband just had to look at me and I was pregnant. And you want to climb across the table and punch them in the yeah. head. You know, that that yeah. infertility trauma sits with you for your whole life. Yeah. You know, it, and it sits really deep and it, and it gets triggered by the most random things like 80-year-olds saying things like that and just like, that's ridiculous, you know. Good for you. Yeah. Claps for you. Congratulations. Like- yeah. Yeah, um, but it, it's not the reality for a lot of people. And I mean, coming back to it, I, obviously, I deal with infertile people day in, day out, all the time. Yep. Coming back to the basics of of what I talk to fifteen and twenty five year olds about is eighty percent of people will conceive in the first twelve months of trying. Yeah. Overwhelmingly, most people conceive. Crazy. Yeah. So, it, it, but it's twelve months. It's not after two months or three months or four months. After six months, if you haven't conceived after six months. Fifty percent of those people are going to need some kind of help, okay. but that's not all. That doesn't mean you need IVF. And yep. a referral to a fertility specialist shouldn't mean that you need IVF. What it should mean is that you're having more tests and stuff done. Yeah. Unfortunately, there are some fertility specialists who will just go, "Oh, look, another person. Let's do IVF," um, without doing some of the background stuff that probably they should be doing. Yeah. So when would you actually? 
get someone to consider IVF? After what kind of time period do you say? Uh, consider IVF. Um, that's a discussion to have with your fertility specialist. Consider seeking extra support as soon as you're worried. Yeah. If you get to three, four months and you think, oh, this feels hard, I feel like there's something I'm missing, that is the time to come and talk to someone like me. Yeah. Um, to your GP, find a GP who is a women's who specialises in women's health. Not all of them do. Yeah. Um, most GPs in bulk billing practices are dealing with colds and flus and diabetes and blood pressure and cancer and skin checks and you know psychological things and all of that kind of stuff. They're not dealing with fertility. Uh, you need to find a women's health GP who specialises in women's health or you need to come and talk to someone like me. Get the foundations to the information that you missed at school about how your body actually works because yeah. even if you were taught it, you probably weren't listening. Um, True. <laughs> and uh, you're probably giggling about putting condoms on bananas. Yes, oh, my God. It's my life um, right now. I'm teaching sex ed and I'm just like, oh, yeah, guys, awesome. come on. <laughs> um, so, you know, get, get that information and use that information to help you make decisions about what you do next. And if that's after three months of trying, excellent. There is so much evidence now that your health in that three months before conception is imperative to the lifelong health of your child and your grandchildren. So if you have a daughter, if you get pregnant with a daughter, by the time she's born, she's already carrying half of your grandchildren. Yeah. Wow. So your health in the three months before you conceive her will determine her health and the health of your grandchildren. So the multi-generational impact of preconception health has been researched really heavily for the last five or 10 years. Um, and there's so much information coming out about that. So if you're, you've been trying for two or three months, or even if you think you're nearly ready to start trying, come and see someone like me so we can point you on the, in the right direction to get the information you need to be able to access the help you need when you need it, rather than waiting till you've been trying for five years, being terrified to get a referral to a fertility specialist because you think that means you'll have IVF and you don't want to. Yeah, and I think that's Lots important as well, we pointing out, you know, not all GPs are understanding of women's health. I've gone through that myself, and I think it can be really frustrating and very deterring. You don't want to go back. It makes you really just like, they don't get it. Sometimes I'll push you in the wrong direction. That's really hard. So I think, again, just another reason people yeah. like you are so important to have around you know, because... The, the young girls with acne, that's okay, we'll just put you on the pill. Um, the young girls with painful periods, that's right, we'll just put you on the pill. Um, the young girls, you know, the, and, and sure, the pill's going to make the problem better. It's going to take the symptom away, but it's not addressing the root cause. So no. then when you're 35 and you stop taking a pill and all of those problems come back um, and then you can't get pregnant, you think, hang on, what what went wrong there well that's something i've talked about this on the podcast before um i was on the pill i was one of those one of those girls i was about 14 years old getting really painful periods to the point where i would vomit yep. and i was put on the pill till i was 23 um yep. i actually went in for an internal ultrasound for my bladder i came out and they said oh you need to go my gp just said you need to go see a gynecologist because you have less endometrium lining than a lady who's gone through menopause and me at 23 thinking, you know, this was two years ago now. And I was kind of like, what does that even mean? And he goes, well, essentially you, would, you wouldn't you would be able to get pregnant if you wanted to have a baby right now because there's nowhere for the baby to implant. You need to come off the pill. 
And so there I am like, oh my God, what what do I do? Where do I go? This, this, this. I was just chucked on an, um, on the IUD, another form of contraception that completely put me out of whack. And I'm still in the process of trying to understand what that means for me and my body now. Yeah. And a lot of that, you know, I'm, I'm not anti-pill. I think the pill's amazing. Oh, absolutely. And, Contraception's and, and awesome. And the research <laughs> that was done on the pill to prove its safety and efficacy was done on in the 70s on doses that are hundredfold higher than the doses of the pill now. Yeah. So um, it's definitely safe and it's definitely effective, um, but there are alternatives. And, you know, I know a lot of young girls in my life, your sort of age group, who... I choose not to go on the pill um, and then they think they're depressed and, and they're having all these mood swings and, you know, all this stuff. And I'm like, but you have to understand that's normal. Like, that's what your body does. Yeah. And when you're on the pill, you're like this. And when you're not on the pill, you do have times where you feel awesome and times where you feel completely shit. And check your calendar and see where you're up to, you know. I, I get messages from, from close people to me going, oh, my God, I'm so depressed and it's awful. And oh, I'm like, are you about to get your period? They're like, Yes, like, give it a couple of days. PMS. We'll be, fine. We'll be all right. Yeah, we'll be okay. Yeah. Um, and how you can nourish your body to support those fluctuations and expect your expectations around those fluctuations and timing your uni assignments and your work presentations and your all that kind of stuff around your cycle. It's like a superpower. Yeah. it's amazing. Yeah, you know, we're we're not like men. All of this equality stuff, we're not the same. We're different. And we should definitely have um, similar, you know, similar opportunities and, and, and chances, but we should not be lumped in the same category because we're completely different. We're different every day. Yeah. You know, guys just cruise along at the same level all the time. Women, we're different all the time, you, you know, and, and catch us on an ovulation day or in the <laughs> three days before ovulation, man, I could change the world. Um, yeah. I love but that. that week before your period, give yourself some grace. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I had a really good conversation with um, Demi from Bright Girl Health recently. Yeah, on she's period. awesome. She is she? so yeah. fantastic. And she was talking yeah. very similar about, you know, using your cycle to your advantage and, and yeah. making sure you're productive in the times that, you know, you yep. understand that you may feel more productive and, and yeah. all of those yep. things. Um, in terms of, you know, someone being that 15 to 25 age group, like you've talked about, are there any tests or anything that you would recommend someone like me to do, um, you know, who's not necessarily ready to have babies yet, but wants to start thinking about maybe what's no going tests, on? No nothing at all. Don't start overcomplicating things. Okay. Get yourself a calendar, an old school calendar on your wall in yep. your bathroom with the squares. Yeah, I've got, got one out there. <laughs> and just start documenting what your body's doing know yourself understand what's normal for you yeah um and that knowledge in and of itself will make such a difference to your fertility later you know yeah. so many girls i talk to 35 37 they've spent thousands of dollars on ovulation test kits because they don't know when they're ovulating i'm like throw them away for god's sake yeah. just listen to your body trust your body know that your body knows what it's doing and it is actually trying to get you pregnant all the time because it's procreation of the species. That's that's what your body is what, what we're here for. What we're supposed um, to be doing, yeah. Sort of. Um, and so, you know, that, that would be my, my biggest advice. And then look into some of the things that are impacting how your hormones work. Learn to understand your hormones first and then 
learn about the things that are impacting your hormones, you know, the, the things that interrupt how your hormones work normally, how you can nourish your hormones, nourish your cycle, um, learn skills on nurturing yourself. You know, your generation are really good at, at me time and self-care and, and my generation look at, at your generation sometimes and go, oh, they're lazy or they, you know, they don't have a work ethic or, you know, all these kinds of things. And it's just not true. These people who slave themselves and work hard and have these 60-hour weeks and stuff, their hormones are through, you know, all over the place because they're not looking after themselves. So practising some of those skills and and, um, techniques for nurturing yourself and nourishing yourself and protecting your future fertility is really important. So are there any kind of lifestyle factors or or things like that that you recommend to people that you chat to heaps heaps heaps, heaps. So I, have yep. minute, I have a 40 minute um, master class on my website called awesome. toxins and your fertility okay um, which is all about the um, everyday exposures to chemicals yep. that are interrupting how our hormones work um, bpa is one that most people have heard of you know whenever you buy anything plastic it says bpa free um, bpa has been linked to um, longer time to pregnancy, uh, precocious puberty, miscarriage, stillbirth, um, egg quality, sperm quality, all sorts of things like that. And even though something's BPA-free, probably they've just used BPS or BPF instead, which actually just is bad. So, you know, the toxins exposure, and that's just one. You know, in the yeah. EU, they've um, there's a group that have isolated over 1,400 endocrine-disrupting chemicals that are known to interrupt how your hormones work. Um, and there's a group in the US who've identified over 1,200 known endocrine disruptors that interrupt how your hormones work. So um, educating yourself around what those toxins are Um, and how you can reduce your exposure to them. You can't avoid it because there are a whole lot of exposures you can't control. Um, But learning which exposures you can control and how you can reduce your exposure to these chemicals will have an unbelievable um, impact. This book um, here, Countdown by Shanna Swan, um, she says that our exposure to endocrine disrupting chemicals means that by the year 2045, everyone will need to have fertility treatment to conceive because there will not be enough sperm left. Oh my God. Because of our exposure to yeah. endocrine disrupting chemicals. That's terrifying. Terrifying. All isn't of these it? books up here, all on the same topic. Yeah. So, uh, 15 to 25 year olds, the. The first 20 minutes of my presentation is about learning about your body and some of the stuff that Demi talks about. Yeah. And the rest of it is about this stuff. How can we find, how can we reduce our exposure to these chemicals by learning what our endocrine system is, how it functions and how it's impacted by these chemicals, where these chemicals are and how we can reduce our exposure to them. Yeah. God. And as if that's something that we don't hear about more often as well. Like that is just insane that that is not something that has ever crossed, you know, really? my Instagram. I've seen a lot of tox free and this and that. I hadn't heard that that is, you know, especially that fact by we're not by, have any sperm left. Um, how our modern world is threatening sperm counts, altering male and female reproductive development and imperiling the future of the human race. Jesus. And everyone talks about apocalypses and this and that. And here we are, it's toxins. <laughs> like that's the thing that is very likely to to have that impact. So BPA is in the obesogen category. It's linked to um, diabetes 
and um, obesity, Jeez. children and environmental toxins, the toxin solution, the hidden po poisons in air, water, food and products we use are destroying our health, oh sick and fat of poorer, the urgent threat of hormone disrupting chemicals to our health and our future and what we can do about it. Yeah. That's, and that's just just skimming the surface yeah well i'll make sure I'll, i've seen all those obviously people aren't going to see those on <laughs> the podcast listening but i'll make sure i link all of those books in the show notes as well just in case people want to go um have a look and maybe maybe well, purchase it, those uh, to be honest with you um monica I've, I've got these books and i open them and i go <gasps> I'm yeah. scared, and i close them again yeah if you if you google endocrine disrupting chemicals you will want to lock yourself in an organically produced cotton wool box yeah. and never leave your house again. It's terrifying. Oh, and you will be put into a, a state of a catatonic state of fear. Yeah. Um, that's not helpful to anyone, which yeah. is why I did the the toxins and fertility masterclass. Yeah. Um, because what I've done in that is pull together the actionable things you can do mm -hmm. you know on the one hand we can read these books and get terrified and go out there lobbying government and trying to make a difference on the other hand we can go what can i do for me about my own personal exposure yeah. so for my family when i first learned about all of this stuff um which interestingly was not while i was working in ivf clinics it was oh. after that yeah um i started i went all right i need to know more about this i need to research more now we that would have been five years ago um and my family my immediate family are very low tox we live very low tox sort of life but we still live i still have plastic pegs and you know we still live a, a fairly normal kind of life but my my extended family think that we're complete hippies because yes. i won't let my children have bubble bath and i won't um, you know, I don't expose them to that much sugar and um, they're just like, oh, you know, Melbourne hippies. <laughs> um, and I'm like, no, no, I actually want to be a grandparent one day. Yeah. And I don't know a single girl between the ages of 15 and 25 who doesn't have painful periods. Okay. I don't know any. That's so common, isn't it? It's ridiculous. And that this this exposure to endocrine-disrupting chemicals in pregnancy, you know, when in utero and in early childhood, has been linked to endometriosis and PCOS. Yeah. Little baby girl fetuses exposed to BPA in utero go through puberty six months earlier than their friends. Wow. Um, you know, th this is a very real and present problem. Yeah. Um, but, and, and as you can see, I get very, very passionate no, about it. No, it's good though. Um, but, it, you know, there are things you can do and there, yeah. are, there are things you can do in your everyday life, which is why I put that, that masterclass together. Yeah, well, I'll absolutely make sure that I link that one there as well. I mean, I'll do a big big plug at the end of this episode anyway, but having you again to be able to condense that information and, and yeah, as you said, not completely terrify people about it. Um, yeah. Because I think that's it's so true. Sometimes when you read things, you get all the facts and then all of a sudden you're like, okay, but what do I do now? I'm frozen into Yeah, what do I do? <laughs> yeah. I'm terrified. And for the first six or eight months that I had these books on my shelf and I was reading them and I couldn't even post about it because yeah. I was just like, I don't even know where to start talking about this. And then there's lots of people out there talking low tox and whatever. And, and I think when we see that from from the outside without any of this knowledge in these books and, and that information, we just go, oh, how nice and that's lovely and linen wearing hippies from West Melbourne. But actually the reality is that, that this is information we need. Yeah. And there are things that we can do and we don't have to become um, uh, 
what is that company, the, the multi-level marketing company that does um, essential oils? What are their oh, names? Oh, uh, like doTERRA and yeah, all those ones. Yeah, we don't have to <laughs> consultants and we don't have to yep. only ever wear organically produced linen and, and sit cross-legged on grass, grassy meadows and shit like that. Yep. We can actually live pretty normal lives. <laughs> we just need to think about what kind of exposures we can control and um controlling them mm-hmm. controlling the ones we can control and being okay with the ones we can't yeah wow god so much really valuable and interesting information from you today thank you so much i just want to how old are your kids now i have a 12 year old and a five year old between my two little people beautiful um, though yeah they are gorgeous that's lovely and you were 42 when you first became pregnant did you say uh, I'm so when I had my daughter, I was thirty. Yeah, I'll be fifty next year, and she'll be thirteen, so thirty-seven. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then I was forty-four when I had my son. 44. Wow! Oh, that's just amazing, isn't it? I love that. So think... um, my son was a, a random bonus extra. We oh wow! Yes. Yeah. Um, he was an unplanned, unexpected bonus. Yeah. Um, after seven years of recurrent miscarriage um, and I finally made the decision to actually take control and I didn't want another baby, you know, not that I didn't want another baby, but I'd made the the confirmation that that wasn't going to happen. I was old now and I was going to get on with my life as a mother of one and started making plans for that to happen Um, and then along he came. Yeah. Oh, isn't that beautiful, so though? At 43. Yeah. And, and when I look back now with this information about endocrine-disrupting chemicals and all the information I've gathered about nourishing your body and nurturing your body and all those things, and I look back and go, well, that's exactly what I did in the, in the six months before he was conceived. So mm-hmm. it's not surprising, really, with the knowledge I now have that he was conceived at that time. But just because I conceived at 43 doesn't mean it's the norm. Yeah. It absolutely is not. And there's a lot of very um, well-researched data that would tell you that that is virtually impossible. Yeah. Um, you know, that the chances of conceiving naturally at 43 are about 1% or 2% wow. um, in a given month. And the chances of miscarrying that baby are about 60-40 um, by that age, if not 70-30. Um, given my history, probably closer to 80% chance that I would miscarry. And then not mis- if I didn't miscarry, the chance of that baby being genetically normal, again, about 70, 70% chance he'd be abnormal. Um, so the statistics certainly say he shouldn't be here and he should not be normal, but he very much is <laughs> Well, <laughs> In most ways, anyway. <laughs> In most ways, he's normal, but he's a very divine little boy and, and, and we wouldn't change a thing. Oh, wow. So he's just an absolute miracle as well. That's totally. just absolutely totally. beautiful. And I'm so happy for you that, you know, you now are a parent of two and how lovely that must be and yeah. having your little family and it's just such a joy. And I just, yeah, I can't thank you enough for coming on today and sharing all Pleasure. of your wisdom. You are so full of information. I couldn't have asked anyone better to come on and, and talk to me about this because <laughs> you me. have blown my mind with half of, half of this stuff. I'm going to go, I'm going to book your masterclass. I'm going to get onto all these tox free stuff. So you was... can clean up your painful periods and your acne oh, and all of that kind of thing seriously. by balancing your hormones. Yes. And, by, and, you know, there, there's a big debate about, is there such a thing as hormone imbalance? And and all the traditional Chinese medicine doctors and the naturopaths and all those people go on about imbalanced hormones and all the doctors and the medical fraternity go on about, but your hormones are never balanced. There's no such thing as balanced hormones. And they're both correct yeah. because your hormones are like a big symphony orchestra. 
and they all have to play their part at their right time. And if there's things interrupting them, like endocrine disrupting chemicals, it's like sitting in the symphony orchestra and the percussion people's microphones turned off or the wind instruments have popped out for a coffee. You know, it, it, it messes up the sound of the entire symphony and the same thing goes with your hormones. If you've got chemicals that are interrupting how your hormones are working properly your symphony's not playing properly and it's going to sound like shit and everything's going to go wrong i love that metaphor that's really good that's awesome that made total sense in my head i was almost picturing that as you were saying that it's fantastic yeah so find out what they are find out how you can reduce your exposure to them reduce your body's toxic load so what's coming in and how are you eliminating it our bodies are really good at eliminating toxins in general but if we overload them and then we don't assist them to eliminate them we're in trouble yeah oh gosh okay well i am inspired now i'm absolutely going out and i'm having a look at all of that stuff for sure that makes sense and of course as someone like i said i've struggled with painful periods i still do if that can help me which I'm sure it absolutely can if I, you know, use my brain hard enough and start actually taking action. Um, that will be the best thing ever because I feel like sometimes I can't get through a work day um, on the day that I get my period, which is just so hard and is not the way that it should be at all. We should be able to live our lives. It's really common, but yeah. it's not, not Yeah. Normal. Oh, well, thank you again. Thank you so much. Um, I hope, pleasure. I hope that, uh, you know, you can continue on doing what you're doing and, and helping people and I just... I say this to so many of my guests, but I just feel so lucky, lucky, sorry, that I've had so many amazing people on that we need more people like you. Of course, you are so special in particular because of your background, because of the knowledge that you've been able to gain, because of your personal experiences and the way that you can really empathize with the people that you're working with and understand them and, you know, give them that extra level of knowledge and of empathy and of just the, sometimes the things that are missing in the healthcare system. So, um, yeah, can't say thank you enough. Uh, really, really welcome. appreciate Thanks it. Thanks for having me. No worries. That is all for today's episode, guys. If you want to hear more from Lucy, head to twolinesfertility.com.au. I will, of course, link her website, the Instagram, all of those things in the bio of this episode. So make sure you check that out. And of course, keep up to date if you want to be a part of that masterclass as well. I know that is definitely something that I'm going to be signing up for. I think that is so important. So especially if you know you're around the age like me where you may be thinking about starting a family in the next few years. Is. It's kind of scary to say that at this point, but it is real and it is things that we need to start thinking about or working towards. My mind was just absolutely blown from that episode. So I hope you guys feel the same way and you feel more informed about IVF, about miscarriage, about how to support someone if they've gone through a miscarriage, about the toxins and things that we can get out of our lives. Again, that masterclass will help us with that. I'll be back in your ears next week with another No Stupid Questions episode. Remember, if you do come up with one, send it to me. It's always anonymous. I'll never share your name. Uh, They're so good. They've been really fun and I know I've had really great feedback from those eps so far. So really happy with that. Glad you guys are enjoying it. Enjoy the rest of your week. As always, stay safe and I'll be back in your ears very soon. See you later.